Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome everyone to this special Sydney Ideas event featuring University of Sydney alumnus and award-winning filmmaker Bruce Beresford. My name is Kate May and I'm the Director of Alumni Relations here at the University. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respects to the elders of the land on which we meet um, and the traditional owners, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the custodianship of this land. Thank you for coming along to, tonight to this special event with Bruce Beresford. The university's connection with Bruce began over 50 years ago when he studied arts here with people like Clive James, John Bell um, and Madeline St. Jin. He's gone on to become one of Australia's most successful filmmakers, making over 30 films and winning a Best Picture Oscar for Driving Miss Daisy. It's his most recent film, Ladies in Black, which I'm, I, I'm sure most of you have seen, that has brought him back to the university. Based on the book by alumna Madeline St. Jin, the film follows protagonist Lisa as she waits to find out if she gets the marks to come to this university. The film has just been nominated for 11 Actor Awards, so congratulations, Bruce. including Best Director and Best Film, making it one of the top 30 Australian films of all time. We were very proud to assist in getting the movie made, and it's our pleasure to welcome Bruce Beresford here back on campus tonight. Once again, thank you so much to everyone for coming tonight and to Bruce for being here with us. I'd now like to pass over to another Bruce, Dr. Bruce Isaacs, who is the Head of Film Studies here at the University, um, and he will be begin the discussion with Bruce Beresford. So thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much to Kate and uh, for such a fantastic audience. Thank you for coming out. Um, this is, I guess as a film studies academic, this is a real treat. It's hard to get access to people like this and to chat to people like this. And I guess it's me seeing film studies from a very different point of view, which is a unique thrill. Um, I'm sure you'll agree with me. Some of you will know Bruce's work intimately. Others will know the big films. Uh, we're going to try and cover uh, as much as we can. I'm not going to give you his bio. That would be a lot more boring than the two of us just chatting. Please welcome Bruce Beresford. So, uh, thanks so much for being here, Bruce. Uh, I'll start by saying uh, Bruce and I met up about three days ago, and we must have chatted for about two hours, I think, and it was a really kind of open, fantastic conversation, so that's what I'm hoping we can kind of recreate. Um, you grew up in Toongabbie, in the western suburbs of Sydney. Toongabbie, yeah, yeah, then yeah. Uh, we made a move up market to Wentworthville. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How, from Toongabbie, I grew up in the western suburbs near St Mary's. I don't know if anyone knows that place, but I know Toongabbie very well. And I'm interested in 
How does a person from Toon Gabby become obsessed with film and moving into a life of film? Well, I just used to, from the first time I ever saw films, when we lived in Springwood, when I was in kindergarten and then first class, I used to get to the local, there was a cinema in Springwood, one there now, and I used to see films and um, when I was only six or seven, I thought that was what I want to do when I grow up, I want to make films. Really? As early as six or seven? Yes, I was obsessed. <laughs> I <laughs> still <laughs> am. <laughs> when we were chatting the other you talked about, like a lot of people like, like me, you w watched the sort of the great Hollywood masters, sort of Hawks, Ford, those sorts of big well, American movies? I, I used to see as many films as I could. My parents weren't very enthusiastic about that. And it was always a struggle to get to see them. Why is that? Because there, were no, there was no television here, remember, yeah. until 1956. So okay. when I was younger, it was a matter of going to various suburbs to see, you know, well, I used to look up the papers and see what was on. And there were revival houses around. Yeah. But I knew, I think, from when I was very young, that the key person in these films was the director. Mm -hmm. And I then would chase up the work of certain directors. And I remember when I'd be at school, you know, with a lot of friends, they'd all say, come on, Bruce, we're going to see such and such a film. It's on Saturday. I'd say, I'm not coming. That director's no good. <laughs> <laughs> and I was always very, very dogmatic, very firm about that. And the directors I did like, who weren't necessarily that famous, mm. but there were directors whose work I liked, I always used to follow them. Mm. And it's still actually a good principle. If you know the work of the directors, you can always tell. It's like a painter, you know, if you look at... Yeah. There's such a strange, um, I don't know, last 30, 40 years, people have challenged this idea that uh, the director is the most important person. But I think there's a resurgence of this idea that the director really... For you, even as a young person, the director was the, the artist, the visionary artist behind the work. Well, I think so. I mean, obviously, director, it's not like a painter where you might have... A painter just does the picture by himself, or a novelist writes a book, oh. a poet writes a poem. I mean, the director is going to be dependent on the cameraman, editors, designers, actors, and so on. But he's still like the puppeteer. He's still got to make sure that all those elements work. Mm. And I think part of the skill is making sure you're working with the right people and that you have some kind of interest in material. I mean, there's been some directors in Hollywood who weren't particularly great directors, but they had a very good taste in material. They used to... So give us an example. Hmm? Give us an example. Uh, George Cuker, okay. I think, was not a particularly great director. He was fairly straightforward. He had good taste. The films were nicely done, but he had very good taste in material. He knew a good script when he saw it. Is that part of the unique skill, that you have to find material that you can... I suppose, polish and that will become significant? Yes, there's no one way of doing it. I mean, a lot of the films I've made, to make them was my idea mm. because it could be from a book I read or an article I saw or something like that. I mean, of the ones you just saw up there in those clips, um, Black Robe was one that I... I read the novel by Brian Moore mm. and I was determined to make it and got an option on the novel. It, was, it took a long time, but we did do it. And the same with Ladies in Black, which... Madeline Singen, who was at this university with me. The moment I read it, I thought, I've got to make a film of that book. And it only took 25 years <laughs> to set it up. <laughs> there's, a, there's a fantastic... I'm sure many people you will know uh, Bruce's memoir from, I think it's 2007, 
Josh Hartnett definitely wants to do this. I bet they don't know it because nobody bought the bloody. Well, that's right. <laughs> we were talking about this, and I one of the things I asked Bruce was, anyone threatened to sue you for this because there are so many colourful stories and, and kind of little bits of information. But your response was, no one even knows it's. it's nobody it read done. the book, so no one was going to sue me. <laughs> In my favourite part, one of my favourite parts of the book is there's a footnote. It appears constantly. It's a series of diary entries, 2003 to four, constantly, still trying to get women in, in black together, still trying to find the funding. Oh. That so it wasn't even ladies in black then. It was well, women in black, and we're talking 15 years. That's from right. That diary long, because I think I first read Madeline's novel around 1995 or 19, mm. 1996, when Clive James brought it to my attention in London, and he said, "This is one of the best novels I've ever read," and I rushed out and got it. And said, oh my God, he's right! And I got to got to film this. So we tried to get going on it almost straight away, but. The enthusiasm I had for it was not widely shared. <laughs> I want to come back to Lazy in Black at some length because, like so many people here, uh, I really got lost in that movie and thought it was, you know, it was, it was serious, but it was as this lovely sort of romance to it as well. So I want to come back to that. When you're a young person, you're growing up, you, from an early age, are going to be a serious director. How do you get into feature films? Because that is such a difficult thing to do. It is, it is difficult. <clears throat> well, when I was a teenager, and when I was a student at this university, I mean, there were no film schools in Australia. I mean, now, everybody I meet under the age of 20 is actually at a film school. <laughs> and there's hundreds and hundreds of films. You know, film I, schools themselves are popping up on every corner. Yes, and, and they do turn out a lot of very good filmmakers. Mm. Which is not surprising. I mean, if you're going to be operated on, it's good a good thing if your doctor went to a medical school, you know. <laughs> so the, the, the film schools are, they do turn, a lot of very good people. I think I'm all for them. Yeah. In fact, I campaigned hard for when the first film school was being established in Australia and there was a lot of talk about, you know, being a waste of money and all that rubbish. But it was a good idea. Yeah. But for me, there, there wasn't anything like that. I started making 8mm films when I was about nine or ten and then I had a little editing thing and eight millimeter I don't know if you know it mm. it's only about as wide as your little finger it's tiny the images are minute and then um, then I got a 16 millimeter camera when I was about 15 and I started making short films and a couple of those got into a few short film festivals in Europe and then I it went on from there yeah mm. you told me the other day that the first feature, The Adventures of Barry McKenzie, uh, you were looking to get funding for it, um, but there was a resistance because you had never made a feature, so That's why would right. anybody well, trust well, you? Well, I was with Barry Humphreys right. and I worked on that script. Barry's here tonight. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I was in London, and I had, I'd heard that the government was setting up a um, fund here for people to make films. And I suggested to Barry that the comic strip, which was in um, Private Eye, would make a good film. And um, 
I did a kind of rough version of it and Barry was touring somewhere and he came back and then we both worked on it. Then when we came back to Australia, we went... I remember I went to meetings of what was then the Australian Film Commission and they said, well, I don't know about you directing this, Bruce, because you've never directed a feature film. And I said, but who has around here? Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. I mean, that's what's... And I'd, and I'd made a lot of short films, yeah. and in England at the British Film Institute I'd made a number of short films, and I'd made a number of art films for the Arts Council. So, one way or another, we actually got a pretty modest budget to do the first Barry McKenzie film. But it sounds like there was a spirit of, we're going to throw ourselves into it. And there was never a misgiving that, can you make the film? It was, well, no one's really done it. We can do this. Um, and it became, I read that it was the highest grossing Australian film, uh, I think, either of the year. Or Barry McKenzie. Yeah. Well, yes, it was very popular. Mm. The reviews were horrible. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> horrible. I mean, I think both Barry and I thought it was good fun. Which it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was very funny. And then we compounded it by making a sequel. <laughs> and that was popular too. Um, but it was... I, can't, I can still can't understand why the critics were so extraordinarily hostile. Because you go sit with an audience and they'd be laughing their heads off all the way through. I mean, this is an interesting thing. My own curiosity. Do you care about critics? I hate them all, but <laughs> but um, no, that's not really true. Most of them I hate most of them. Mm. Yeah. But the getting reviews often for a film director is more important than having an audience like it, because I mean, when I did Break and Morant, for example, that film never had an audience. Statistically, it was seen by nobody, but it had great reviews first here and then in America. And when it was shown in America, although I went to Los Angeles for the opening, it only ran two days. But a lot of film industry people saw it and a lot of critics saw it. And I started getting offers from America to mm. come and direct. So because they liked the film. Yeah. The fact that it hadn't made any money at all and really very few people went to it didn't worry them. They liked the mm. film. And then I got sent a lot of scripts, one of which was Tender Mercies. Mm. And I read that and I thought, this is a great script. I found out later it had been turned down by over 30 directors. <laughs> <laughs> but I liked it. In fact, it won the Academy Award for Best Screenplay. <laughs> yeah. Actually, on, we've got a, can we show the clip from Breaking Morant? South Africa. 1901. The British Crown sent an army to fight by the book against Dutch That's farmers who fought back yeah. any way they could. It's a new kind of war, George. It's a new war for a new century. Lord Kitchener himself recognized the unorthodox nature of this warfare when he formed a special squad to deal with it. They were soldiers, trapped between shifting coats of honor. New orders from Kitchener. No prisoners. The gentleman's war is over. It's wrong, mate. So, Breaking Morant becomes such a critical film in your career because, and I know you've written about this, 
once that gets seen in the US and the, and the critics start to praise it, you're still in Sydney, but you start getting sent scripts from the US. I started to get a lot from the US, and I even got an invitation to lunch with President Reagan, <laughs> who sent a message saying that he loved that film, and I couldn't go. Did you go? No, I never went. I, I was tied up on some other film, and I, I said to him, look, I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, one of the scripts, I think by your own admission, one of the favourite of all of your films is Tender Mercies. And it's a much-loved uh, film by many others. Yes, it only... Tender... I liked... I always liked that film. Mm. But it only really... It only had a good critical response in America. Here it wasn't liked, and in England it, they hated it. Um, I find it hard to understand. I, I mean, Horton Foote who wrote that script, who won the Pulitzer Prize twice and the Academy Award twice for Best Screenplay, was a really wonderful, wonderful writer. And um, I think when I first read the script for it, I, I was absolutely bowled over. I just thought it was written with such honesty, such perception, such refined characterization. I, I couldn't believe those other directors turned it down. I wonder if the Australian reception is... It's such, for people who have seen it, it's, it, it comes across as such an authentic depiction of a time and place. You know, um, it, it's set in, a, in, in, in an American place that feels very American. You know, if, even if I was not familiar with it at all, I would say that seems very authentic to me. And the characters seem to just jump out at you. I, I mean, not so much for me, but I wonder if for others it was difficult to connect with that level of, of authenticity? I don't know. I mean, there's plenty of films that are authentically American that do very well. Mm. I don't know why it, why it was treated with such hostility here and in England. Um, I don't, don't understand it. Mm. But the stature of it seems to have become more global, I guess. The, the admiration for it seems to have spread out from the States. Yes, now it yeah. seems to have a... Yes, there's, a, there's a sort of cult following, I think, uh, for Tender Mercies. And I still, yeah. I mean, I still get people calling me from America who want me to read a script. They say, I've got this project, Bruce. And we were watching Tender Mercies the other night and we thought you'd be good for this. And I thought, <laughs> I wonder if they realise how old I bloody well am now. <laughs> I mean, that was, was yeah. 35 years yeah, ago. Yeah. Yeah. So after so you do tender mercies, and even as you say, it's not um, it's not necessarily the success in Australia that it is, that it is in US. But your stature must grow enormously with that film. So it's now the early nineteen eighties. Uh, not not here in America. But in America. In America. Oh yes, it did. And so do, does that start yeah, to open? It got, I think it had three or four Academy Award nominations. Yeah. Yeah. Does that start to open real avenues for you? Or do you start to see yourself as moving into the American industry? Well, those sort of things all make it a bit easier to, to get someone to answer your phone calls. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and meetings. And, and then it makes it easier, too, for my agent to... If I, if I have a project I want to do and I give the script to my agent and say, what can we do with this? And he'll say, oh, I can give it to this studio or that one. They'll look at the seat being directed by Bruce. They say, oh, well, maybe we'll have a look at it. Yeah. Whereas if I hadn't done Tender Mercies or Driving Miss Daisy, they probably wouldn't bother. Mm -hmm. It's not a pushover any time. 
<laughs> to get it's the film together. It's always tricky. Yeah. Um, on that note, so you Driving Miss Daisy is obviously one of your most well-known, loved films. I really love the story or, or the the development of the project and how it, it wasn't always going to be this huge. Um, popular, well-known, iconic movie. It was supposed to be a really small. Oh, it was. Yeah. Well, the film was um, originally going to be financed by Alan Ladd Jr., a very nice man who was running MGM. And I went to America to start work on it. And he called Richard Zanuck, the producer, and myself into the office, and he said, "You two will never speak to me again. And I know we've signed a contract, but I'm not going to finance the film." And he said, and Zanuck, who was a fiery little man, sort of blew his top. And Alan Ladd said, I'm not going to do it. He said, an old Jewish lady, an old black man talking in a kitchen. Who's going to watch that? <laughs> and I said to Zanuck, he, he's probably right. <laughs> and Zanuck said, but you think it's great? Oh, I said, it is great. It's a wonderful script, but it is an old black man, an old mm. Jewish lady talking in a kitchen. Anyway. So that was the end of that, and so I said to Zanuck, "Well, what do we do now?" And he said, "I'll find the money somewhere else. We'll get it from an from try the other studios." And he did. He tried the other studios, and they all turned us down. So then Zanuck's wife, Lily, said, "Look, there's a man in Canada called Jake Ebbets, and he finances films himself as an independent. Let's send it to Jake." So we found out where Jake was. He was skiing somewhere, in. <laughs> Um, near Vancouver, so we sent him the script, and we all waited. And I thought, well, it was the last throw of the dice. If he doesn't come through, we're sunk. But he called up from the ski resort and said, "This is a great script." He said, "I'll finance it," and he did. So it was an independently made film, and Warner's had distribution rights on it. But then, when it was finished, they said, "Look, it's you know, it's an old black man, an old Jewish man <laughs> talking in the kitchen." <laughs> And so, their only plan was to. Is this a boring story? This is a fantastic story. Their plan was only to release it in an art house in San Francisco, and then I thought, oh well, okay. So I was getting ready to come back to Australia when a call came from Warner Brothers, and they said, you know that old film with the film you've got with the old um, <laughs> black man and the lady talking in the kitchen. They said, "Where is it?" And I said to Zanuck, "Have we got a copy?" He said, "Yeah, there's one. There's a copy in the office." And they said, "Bring it over to the to the studio, to Warner's." Mm. So I put it in the boot of the car. Zanuck didn't come with me. In those days, it was all the big cans, you yeah. know. So I took it over there, and when I got there, there was a big theatre. It was bigger than this, and there was only one man there. <laughs> and I said, "What are we doing?" He said, "Want to look at the film?" And so we sat down together in the middle of the theatre, and the film came on. And after about 20 minutes, probably no more, he just got up and walked out. <laughs> so I followed him out, and I said,、um, "You don't like it?" And he said, "I do like it." He said, "Is the rest of it as good as the first 20 minutes?" And I said, "It gets better and better." <laughs> and he said, "We can. This will do us." And it turned out that what had happened, they had a Christmas film called In Country that had tanked.、Mm -hmm. They needed 
to push a big Christmas film and they picked Driving Miss Daisy. So from the one, the one um, theatre in San Francisco, they changed their policy and opened it in 3,000 cinemas. Wow. And it took over $100 million in the US alone. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic story because I think what it reveals... But how lucky was I? Well, but it's, it's the sort of arbitrary nature of, of some of these things that decisions get made by executives that are going to determine the, out, the fate of movies. And well, there was there's one person in the room. This is not, you know. He uh, was uh, the he was their marketing head of marketing. So what if he says he didn't even watch the whole film? I don't <laughs> I don't know if he ever saw the whole. Film. <laughs> <laughs> I, in talking to you, you know, the last couple of times, I'm I'm always struck in these great stories by how arbitrary some of this seems. That it could have gone another way. I and think who knows if it had gone that way. There's a lot of stories like that in yep. film history, really. I mean, Warner's, what they did then, though, their marketing and their graphic work was all absolutely first class. Beautifully designed posters, a great trailer, although they gave away the entire story in the trailer. <laughs> in two minutes, you knew everything. You didn't have to watch the film. <laughs> but they did market it very, very skillfully. Because we're talking about development, um, you call getting funding and developing a movie, the true stuff of melodrama. That's where the real melodrama is in making a film. It's just how to get it made. Can you tell the... Because I, I loved the story when you told me. Can you tell the Kevin Klein story? Kevin Klein yeah. story? Because sure I, it won't be boring. Well, it won't be boring. And <laughs> Bruce asked me at the start, uh, well, he's, his condition was he will talk about anything as long as he, it's, it's not going to slander anyone. All right. And well, this, we're assured that this, this is This won't get me sued, because it's true. <laughs> there was a film um, in America about Barnes. You, everybody probably knows about the Barnes collection in Philadelphia. Yes, a lot of people would anyway. He had a, a very, very eccentric man who made a fortune out of a funny liquid that they sold to babies called... Glyrol or something strange, and he became a multi-multi-squillionaire. But he was wildly eccentric, and he spent a lot of money, millions and millions, buying art in Europe, a lot of impressionist stuff, and putting it in a collection in, um, in Philadelphia. And then he restricted people seeing it. He made it difficult for them to see it. And he used to give lunches at which he only served lettuce. Nothing except letters. He was wildly eccentric, but a very colourful character. But I was sent a very, very good script about Barnes. It was very funny, but it was, it was very accurate. It was well-researched, and it was absolutely fascinating. So I went to Hollywood, uh, having, getting, having been sent the script in Australia, and they said to me, um, who'd be good to play Barnes? And I said, I know who'd be perfect. Kevin Klein. You know all know Kevin Klein. And they said, ah, oh, do you know him? I said, no, I've never met him. And they said, um, well, he's in New York. Look, we'll fly you to New York. You'll have lunch with him. And we'll send him a script beforehand. And have lunch with him and see. And we'll see if we can get it going if you, you and Kevin Klein get on. I said, sure. So I went to New York, met Kevin Klein, who was very engaging and funny. And we got on well because he was very keen on opera. We talked a lot about music and operas and all that sort of stuff. He'd done a, I think he'd done sort of music degree somewhere. Mm. He seemed a very interesting man. So I got back to Hollywood and I, they said, how'd it go? I said, 
Seemed fine, it was good. Great, they said, well, this is going to be terrific, we'll go ahead. And then a few days later, my agent called me and he said, how'd you get on with Kevin Klein? And I said, well, he seemed good to me, he seemed fine. And he said, he just called up and said he wants to do the film. I said, that's good, but only if you don't direct it. <laughs> I said, what? And before I'd left New York, I'd said to Kevin Klein, look, give me your phone number and I'll give you mine so we can always contact each other. Because if you're trying to deal through studios and agents, something goes wrong. And I said, better we can talk like that. And uh, he, said, he wrote down a number for me. So after I got this message, I called the number. Didn't exist. <laughs> So he already knew when he gave me the number what he was going to say to them. Anyway, the result of that was that everybody, the film was kind of finely balanced, you know. They lost confidence. Yep. It never went ahead. It was never been made. I love the story because I think what it suggests is there's a sort of madness to this whole system that it's so difficult to predict how things are going to turn out. And there's a lot of fortune involved in con and having to control things. And um, there's a lot of lot of whim. In yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and so the story is all the more colourful. Um, Dan, can we have a look at the driving Miss Daisy clip? So this is a sequence, and I wanted to ask Bruce because there are probably some of my students here, and people might be interested. Famous sequence. Could you, after we watch it, could you give us a brief insight into how would you direct a scene like this? Um, because it's such an intimate. You know, I, I would imagine it would be difficult working with performers doing this. Long time ago now. That <laughs> Hulk? Yes. You're my best friend. Oh, go on now, Mr. No, Daisy. You, you really. Did. You are. You are. Okay, so very famous sequence, became a kind of iconic sequence, I think, in this film. Do you have any thoughts looking at it? So, long time ago, it's 1989, what are we at? 2018, Nearly 30 years. Do you have any thoughts on what that was? Do you have a mem any memory of what that was like well, on set with those two actors? Yes, I mean, it was all, it was my, actually, if you look carefully at the room they're in, it's a room from her childhood, full of, child full of things that she had as a little girl that was just they all said to me where are we going to do the scene and i said we're going to do it in the room we've never been in in the entire film we're going to do it in the room that was your bedroom as a little girl and th that helped so that's not care. a script that's not in the script that was that wasn't in the you're script. adding that in to give a depth to yes, this character yes 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 yeah. and then remember directing these were two of the best actors on the planet <laughs> It wasn't that hard. I mean, we, uh, I said to, I remember saying to Jessica, just keep it as simple as possible. Yeah. Because she was old and with Alzheimer's then. And, I mean, the character was. Yeah. She, certainly, <laughs> she certainly wasn't. She was as sharp as a tack. Um, but I said, keep it very simple. And Morgan was one of those actors too who always, he always had very good taste. 
He never overplayed anything. He seemed to have a wonderful, instinctive understanding of characters. Mm. I mean, this is why he's become so incredibly mm. famous. This is... I mean, I can't remember what he did before this, but this is such an important role for this him. This was only his he... second film. Yeah, right, yeah. wow. He'd only done one... That was one of the reasons we had trouble setting it up. Yeah. Because Morgan was unknown, and um, he'd only made one film in a small role. And Jessica was known very she was really a stage actress not known well she done she was in the birds, birds the she was in a few movies but that made it very difficult when Zanuck and I went to the studios after Alan Ladd said he wasn't going to do it they all said oh well we'll do it um they said well, I remember one of the studio heads said to me why do you want to do it with that ugly old black man <laughs> and I said that ugly old black man happens to be one of the best actors yeah. in the world and you should be proud to have him. But it's interesting, I mean, just a line like that, which is obviously an offensive line, but it shows you how fickle some of these things are, that a person can just... A personal opinion, you can flaw a movie. Sorry, say that? Like a personal opinion, let's say from Oh, well, it's always or... like that. You see, I think with Driving Miss Daisy, I was very lucky having a producer like Richard Zanuck, mm. because he, like me, he, he had very good taste. He was an interesting man because he wasn't, he never read books, he didn't know about art or anything. He was an interesting, fascinating man. He was very smart. But I was always surprised he never seemed to be terribly well informed. But when you came to scripts, mm. he was absolutely sharp. Mm. And he, he just used all those studio people. I mean, if we'd done what they said, we could have made it. I mean, one of the people said they'd do it if we used Eddie Murphy. Yeah, well, wow. Eddie Murphy is a very good actor. Mm, I've done a mm, film with him. Yeah. But at that stage, he was only in his 20s. Yeah. I said, you can't possibly do it So if they take Eddie Murphy, does he come with money? Huh? If the, if the stu so the studio wants Eddie Murphy. Would they'd have financed it. They would have. Yep. So, okay, yep. so they're and they wanted people other than Jessica. Uh, than, um, um, Jessica Tandy. Than Jessica Tandy. Yeah. They, we know who wanted to do it was um, Lauren Bacall. Okay. And... I had, I had a drink with Lauren Bacall. He was really doing a hard sell because he could certainly have set it up. You know, they'd have put money in. The studios would have money in with Lauren Bacall. But I felt, you know, she said to me, you've got to let me do it. You've got to have me. She said, I am Jewish. <laughs> she said, it's a Jewish lady and I'm Jewish. <laughs> and she said, Jessica Tandy is not. And I said, yes. And I recounted this to Richard Zanuck and he said, doesn't matter, Bruce. Mm. Jessica is the right one for the role. And he stuck to mm. his guns. He turned down all those people who wanted this star and that star. He just said, no, does we're the, going to make it properly. Does the is, the producer's, is part of the producer's role to protect you a bit, to protect the vision of the film? Yes, hugely. Right. Yes. So this is why you get films like um, some of those great films Carol Reed made, you know, the, the Third Man and Odd Man Out. He was protected by Alexander Corder, right. who always made sure, nearly always, that he got what he wanted. And he was there to sort of riding shotgun for one of the greatest directors ever. Mm. But once Corder had gone, Carol Reed had a tough time. Let's sort of amp that up then. If you, you now move... Let's move into a really big, bona fide Hollywood movie with double jeopardy. You're doing a very different kind... You, you've done so many 
complex, subtle character studies. Um, you've done films that research place and are incredibly authentic, but suddenly now you find yourself in a kind of thriller action film. Uh, it's got gestures to other American films, a bit of Hitchcock. I love that opening sequence of The House, for example. Okay, so immediately you can see that we're talking about a very different kind of cinema yeah, to what we've been are. used to, but also very different industrial structure. You, you, you said to me, this is your true Hollywood movie. What does that mean? Well, I'd been working in England. I was supposed to be doing a film with Merchant Ivory called Our Country's Good, which is adapted, a play version of a Tom Keneally novel. Um, which one? Oh, well, the one, it's about convicts coming to Australia. But Our Country's Good was a play written by a wonderful, and again, an American writer who lives in England called, with the wonderful name of Timberlake Wurtenbaker. <laughs> but Timberlake had written a wonderful play, and the play had been quite a big success. So I thought this would be a great film to do, and Merchant Ivory wanted to finance it. And I was in London, and it all fell apart because we couldn't, no actors wanted to do it. Ismail Merchant, who's now sadly dead, he said, Hugh Grant will do it. He said, we'll get all these actors we've had in all the other Merchant Ivory films. They all turned it down. Nobody wanted to do it. So after about probably the best part of two years of this, we got, and we got no actors, I said, we'll get Australian actors. So we tried with a whole lot of well-known Australian actors. They didn't want to do it either. And then my agent called from um, Los Angeles and said, look, you've got to stop fiddling with that Australian thing. Nobody wants to be in it. You've got to face it. You're not going to get any actors. He said, he said, I've got a script here called Double Jeopardy, which he said, it's a load of tosh. But <laughs> I want to come back to that in, said in, in a bit. He said, it's, it's well-written tosh, <laughs> and it's quite lively. And he said, I think you should come here and show them that you know how to make a commercial Hollywood movie. Mm. And I said, well, they're, they're easy to make. I said, it's films like... Um, driving Miss Doty that are difficult because yeah. it's all nuance and character mm. and everything. Anyway, I read the Double Jeopardy script and I agreed with him. It was good fun. And um, so I went, never made our country's good. It's still, I'm still sorry we didn't. Never made it. And we did Double Jeopardy, which was great to make. And I had Tommy Lee Jones is fantastic mm. in it. Tommy Lee Jones gives a great performance. And he said to me one day, you're very lucky I'm in this film, Bruce. <laughs> and I said, why is that, Tommy Lee? Why am I so lucky? He said, what other actor could read this rubbishy dialogue and make it sound plausible? <laughs> he said, only me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you, that's the position I'm really interested in. How does the projects, so you get sent tender mercies, you love the script so much, you don't even finish it before you're trying to get a hold of it so that you can direct. And there's a sense in which you feel you can do this movie. With Double Jeopardy, because, you know, in the big studio system, how does the script that, by your own reckoning, is tosh, how does it come about? Well, the script was written by two guys who were real Hollywood writers who'd been at... Um, either Harvard or Yale together. And they'd been friends since they were undergraduates. And um, they'd written a number of 
Holly, real Hollywood movies. They made a study of Hollywood movies and they made them... They were great guys, mm -hmm. but they made these films, these scripts, rather cynically, very much in a mould. And um, they came up, they put, you know, element here, element A, element B. They put bits and pieces together to make it good. But then, even then, I didn't think it was right. And I said to the head of the studio, it's just not quite working. And she said, um, let's get Robert Newman in. Bob Newman, who'd written Bonnie and Clyde, the first one, yeah. and, and directed a lot of... Wonderful man, mm. who directed a number of films. So they paid him an absolute squill <laughs> to come in and do a polish on it. And he and I sat down together, oh, weeks, for weeks, going through it all, and then we'd say, that's a problem. And he'd say, I can fix that. And he'd put things... <laughs> and he did a lot of things that really brought it to life. Yeah. He didn't get a credit. Mm. Didn't get a credit. Wonderful man who's now sadly got Alzheimer's. Mm. Wonderful man. So, did you find directing an action sequence like that, for example, does that take you into a different space? I mean, what's the difference in... Oh, I storyboarded That's cut for clear. Yeah. It's, you know, it was all storyboarded. Yeah. Yeah. So, can you go through that a bit? I mean, that's so in the script says what? She escapes from the car. The uh, so, the script would be pretty bare bones describing what's going to happen. Yes, well, the script would just say... He runs downstairs or he tries to get in the car, yep. she smashes and the car goes off the ferry. We've got to work... That's what directing is. You've got to work out all, <laughs> so, all the details. Because right? yeah, so I, I find that very fascinating. So you would then... I you're going to storyboard it and they're going to become your shots on the... Pretty much you will try to stick to the storyboards? Yes. On, on the day? Oh, I do. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Because, you see, if I storyboard it beforehand, I know it'll work. Yeah. I think that will, provided we get these, I often say to the assistant director, if we get the shots on the storyboard, yeah. we have a sequence. A, if mean, we miss one, we won't. It makes me think of, there's a great line from Hitchcock, I don't know if he, you, you know, if he was telling the truth, you, you can never tell with Hitchcock, but he said um, that when he goes onto the set, the movie is already made in his head and he's just... He's playing out the angle of Hitchcock. Well, that's why films are so deadly. <laughs> <laughs> I always, they're quite... You can't deny they're quite clever. I always find the acting in them mm. excruciatingly bad. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Can you tell me what's it like um, now that you move into a movie like Double Jeopardy and a lot of these other projects that you're working on in, in the States, what's it like working with huge stars and, and with executives oh, crowding? And, and the 90, over 95% of the actors are wonderful because I think the reason a lot of them have become huge stars is because they're focused, punctual, agreeable and collaborative. You get, you, inevitably, you get the odd one who's a jerk. Um, but very few. Mm. I find most of them a delight to work with. The studio executives, on the other hand, are usually a mob of complete... They should be locked up. <laughs> they're, they're usually a nightmare. Not always. Not always. Do the studio executives... But if you've got a good producer like Richard Zanuck, um, they keep them away and let you get on with directing it. So the producers can deal with the, the studio executives to a degree... 
Yes, often to an almost total degree. Oh, right. Often the film okay. will end and it's only then they'll tell me what hell they've been through, keep, <laughs> keeping people away from yeah. me so that I can get on and direct it. With, um, it's got worse, you see, because when we did films like Driving Miss Daisy, they didn't, you didn't have all the electronic stuff with the computers and yeah. screens. Now they can all sit down at the back of the um, set yeah. watching it while you're doing it. Do the say on a, on a big movie, do the executives come on set? Yes. Really? I mean, I'll be directing someone and someone will come on and say, Bruce, could you get him to do it with a laugh? Say, what? Actually, you told that that's the Eddie Murphy story. That that's the Eddie Murphy. In, in Mr. Church, he, yeah. he, and he finishes his scene and then the executive with a laugh. I say, no. They say, why not? I mean, just as an alternative. I say, no. Yeah. So why not? Why, why don't you give in to the executive? Give in once and you're sunk. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do it. When we were talking about this, I, it, it was a great example of, I guess, the subtlety of directing as well, which is you told me that if you had given in at that moment, prior to that, you had won over Eddie Murphy's trust. Yes. I mean, Eddie Murphy, the film I did with him, Mr. Church, which probably nobody has seen, was a... Um, <laughs> dramatic film, but again, based on a true story. And Eddie had never really made a film like that. And so when, when I was going through the script with him and at, his, at his house, we used to spend a lot of time going through it, he said to me, look, you've got to make sure, he said, tell me exactly what you want me to do all the way through, because he said, I've never done anything like this. He said, I was world famous when I was 19 telling jokes. And he said it was... It all went to my head and I got carried away and made all these comedies. But he said, never done anything like this. So you must be very precise. And I was all the way through it. So I didn't want... When this guy came up and said, get him to do this scene with a laugh, I said, Eddie will lose confidence. I said, apart from the fact that's a ridiculous suggestion, um, I don't want to... Eddie's got confidence in me. He's a wonderful actor, but I don't want to erode that confidence mm. by suddenly turning around and saying, well, I know we do it this way, Eddie, but now do it that way. Mm. It's crazy. And I also find it interesting that an executive would believe or not have, I guess, the sensitivity to understand that it's a, it's a complicated situation. Well, and, you know, a lot of them, yeah, it's difficult. Mm. It's, uh, especially complicated sequences, because they're all looking at the material. Mm. And I've had situations where there's been a particularly complicated scene and then the studio will get in touch and they'll say, Bruce, the scene doesn't cut together. You can't make it flow. And I say, what makes you think that? Then you realise they've actually got some other editor working nice. somewhere else. On the film? Yeah. No, secretly. Oh Somewhere God. they've got another editing room set up. He's editing the material, being supervised by studio executives. So, but of course... I mean, that's so nefarious. <laughs> well, it's very... It's pretty underhand. It's like but, of course, you see, I remember in the case of this one where the, they said to me, on Double Jeopardy it was, that it wouldn't cut together. I said to my editor, who, Mark Warner, who cut Ladies in Black, mm. I said, does that scene cut together? And he said, yep. I said, do you have any problem? He said, no, but just followed your storyboards. It cuts together. Mm. But, of course, they didn't have my storyboards. So he said they couldn't make it work. So and they didn't, and they're always suspicious. They think you're doing something strange. Also, in their defence, there are a lot of mad directors around. <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> and I suppose, in, I, I guess in their defense, they perceive themselves as controlling the money. And if the yeah. movie loses money, they There's get a lot. in. Uh, There's millions of dollars involved yeah. and people get very angry. That's the thing that I always find so intoxicating. There's so much money involved. I mean, yes, well, these days there's money involved on big films, but there's a whole strand of films, like uh, Mr Church, in fact, yeah. where you're really making it very quickly on a low budget. So can I ask, what's the budget on a movie like Mr Church, bearing in mind that it's got Eddie Murphy, but it's still an independent type? It was about $9 million. Right. Yeah. So does that mean Eddie Murphy has to take a pay cut to, to oh, do Eddie did like it for virtually nothing. Right. Yeah. So that's believing in a script, wanting to be part of a Eddie project. loved the script, right. yes, and wanted to do it dramatically. I mean, originally it was going to be, the actor was going to be Samuel Jackson, mm -hmm. and he pulled out of it at the last minute to go and do some big action film. Mm -hmm. So we'd lost him. So then we looked around and we were discussing who else we could send it to. And I said, well, send it to Eddie Murphy. Mm. And then some, I said, well, we've got nothing to lose. If he says no, we're in the same position we are now. So the script went up to him and he, he called about two days later and said, that's a terrific script. He said, I'd, I'd love to do that. I mean, it's great to... The flip side is you get that sense of there's a sort of personal relationship. So that Eddie Murphy sees himself as per well, he, he personally involved in it. You know, it, it's going to mean something. I mean, to he me. didn't know me, and I, yeah, and he just liked he liked the material. Yeah, that's great. But it was interesting that he read it himself. Yeah, he didn't give it to an agent to read, and that's what they have these people. What do they call them? Uh, coverage. Okay. They have people doing coverage, so the script will go to some uh, graduate student, someone at a college, mm. and they write. Uh, first, uh, first they write out the story, so the person, the producers don't have to read the whole thing. It's written out. And then they write an opinion on it. And that opinion can usually sink it. I mean, the coverage on Driving Miss Daisy was absolutely lethal. It was horrible. Well, everyone who read it just <laughs> said it was an incredible load of rubbish. So you had all that coverage that was panning the script, but, and then it's the belief of Richard well, and you in the project. If it hadn't been for Zanuck, it wouldn't. Yeah. I mean, Zanuck was absolutely mm. confident of his own taste. I remember I said to him one day, Dick, so many people have told us this is an amazing pile of crap. Can they be wrong and we're right? And he said, yes, yeah. they're wrong and we're right. Yeah, wow, and it, and it plays out. But uh, you... He was a great producer. Mm. And, and as you say, great producer, major part of that is knowing good material and, and wanting to push it through at any cost. So that you get the funding from a guy in a snowfield, you know, ultimately, uh, to fund the film which otherwise might not have been made. Yeah, so, it wouldn't have been. Yeah, no, that's no. A, can we go to Ladies in Black? So can you give us uh, a sense of why you had such a commitment to this film and how you've had... First, Isabella Rossellini was some time ago attached. Oh, that was a Which I saw that in your... That was in your 2007 yes. memoir. And I thought that was... I love Isabella Rossellini, oh, but I thought... Oh, she'd been good, I think. Yeah. And, the, and then you were trying to get Kate Blanchett and that kind of that went off great. the rails. I think... I think of no, Isabella Rossellini wanted to do it. But that, in those days, we were trying to get money from the Film Commission here. 
and they hadn't heard of Isabella Rossellini, which didn't help. No. Well, the people we talked to hadn't heard of yeah. that. That didn't help. And then I think when we tried other actresses, I don't really quite know what the problem was, some big-name actresses, I think they saw the role that... Um, the, of the of the um, what's her name running the the, the boutique, mm. um, Magda. Mm. I think they saw it as a supporting part, and not as a main role. So that's why people kept turning it down. And so they turned it down on that basis. So then, after we'd had a number of turn downs from people who I thought would have taken it, I suddenly got the idea of sending it to Julia Ormond, mm. and then she responded very quickly. She realised it was a leading role, not a supporting mm. role. She was, I think, the only one who did realise that. So when was that in the scheme of this long journey to make the oh, well, movie? The, the Julia, I mean, we only, I only approached Julia Ormond. It was only just over, a bit over a year ago. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, we'd been through a long time. A few times it looked like it was being set up. There was an American company, uh, a producer friend of mine named Josh Maurer who wanted to do it. Um, and then he couldn't couldn't get interest in it. Um, some German group were talking about doing it, but they wanted to make everybody in it so nasty that they said, all these people are so nice, can't we have some nasty people? And I said, no, not in this story. I said, they are what they are. We're going to film the book as it was written by Madeline. So I turned that down. Um, and then we just kept going here. And then it was really... I'd more or less forgotten about it when this young lady, Alana Zitzerman, got in touch and said, I think that's a wonderful project. She was from a migrant family. They'd come from the Ukraine. And she related to it very strongly. And then she got together with Sue Millican, with whom I... A wonderful, again, another wonderful producer, mm. with whom I'd done two or three films. And the two of them combined forces and they, they got the finance. And are you... Uh, are you happy with the outcome after all of this time? Well, I'm happy a lot of people have been going to see it. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of your personal assessment, is this going to be one of the films that, that has meant a lot to you? Yes, it did mean a lot to me. And I really tried hard mm. to fill Madeline's book, to get mm. everything I could out of Madeline's book. Yeah. Um, I always loved that book. I thought it was funny. I thought it was um, well-observed. I thought it was... Um, full of interesting characters that wove in and out through the story. I always liked doing that. And I thought it had this theme of tolerance, of assimilation, of the two... So there's a really serious sort of political edge to the movie as well, where, you, where you're talking about an important moment in the past, but it, I guess it has a special resonance now as well. It's, it does. It's very contemporary. Yeah. I yeah. think, actually, when we, when we went to... Because the finance, a lot of the finance was put up by Sony in California, and that was what they liked about it. They said it has a... Although it's set in 1959, they said it has a real contemporary relevance. And uh, you mentioned to me that you still don't know what the distribution is going to be like overseas. There's, there's no. no talk of that. That's still something to eventuate. I guess I'll find out sooner or later. <laughs> you never know. One of the things I said to Bruce was... I've heard I, nothing. The, the things that, that meant a lot to me in Ladies in Black, I loved the way you cut stock into... Um, like an incredibly oh. lavishly create, recreated 1959. Yeah, we did. But those little cuts to... A few, I don't know if people, people notice that. There's four or five oh. stock shots, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, 
There was one of a policeman in a city street directing the traffic. Yeah. We'd never imagine what it would have cost us to try and film that. But even aside from, I guess, the, um, the logistics of doing something, uh, getting the stock footage because it makes your life easier, I remember watching it in the movies, and those stock scenes are really moving. There's, a, there's like a barbecue scene, yeah. there's a, or a picnic, that I think is around, it's supposed to be New Year's, New Year's Eve, I think, a picnic. Yes, there was a... Um, yeah, we looked through, I looked through a lot of um, stuff from the National Library. Yeah. They were very, very helpful. Yeah. Digging, endlessly digging up, going to such trouble to get stuff for us. A lot of it was on 16mm in hand, it wasn't really useful. Because mm. we had to have really, to make it blend in reasonably well, it had to be shot on 35mm mm. and well shot. I mean, what I love about it is in film studies we would say this is sort of breaking the fourth wall a bit because you're not really supposed to tell people that they're not, that they're not watching a movie. The movie is supposed to be, you know, you're immersed in the world of the film. But yes, the I minute that footage comes in... I think the stock footage helps with the atmosphere. Yeah. I don't know how much people notice. Yeah. I yeah. mean, there was the cameraman blended it all terribly yeah. skillfully. I mean, it was cut really seamlessly, yeah. Yeah. but uh, it was also visible. And I and I liked the fact that oh. I don't think there was it was completely hidden, and that's what I really yes. liked about. But it. not everyone's a film buff. Like you. <laughs> they wouldn't all notice. <laughs> and in fact, people have sometimes said to me, "Oh, I like that stock shot," and they pick shots like some of the tram shots that yeah. weren't stock yeah. shots, which you recreated. <laughs> yeah, we filmed them in a. There's a tram museum down in Cronulla. Mm. We filmed mm. them in the tram museum. Yeah. So one last thing, um, and what I told Bruce was, I watched all of Ladies in Black, uh, imagining that uh, Magda and her husband were the refugees in Casablanca. Do you remember that couple in Casablanca? They're fleeing, they're from Hungary. And I just had this, it kind of catapulted me um, you know, back into that era as well. So for me, there was this kind of going backwards, but also pushing forward into the contemporary. So that's why I, f I think I found it so moving, because I kept You see a parallel with Casablanca. Absolutely, <laughs> completely. That, that for me was the romance of the movie. Um, thank you so much for, okay. can we give him Bruce right. a hand? Yeah. That was amazing. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.